Well, if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 6. You noticed a pattern. We're just kind of marching through the Psalms during the month of August. Uh, that brings us to Psalm 6, a psalm you might not want to spend a lot of time in because it's a psalm of raw emotion. It's a psalm that finds the author in a time of great dismay. There is a, there's a brand of Christianity today that tells us that, that God has big dreams for you. And what you need to do is to is to think like God, it, it, think positive thoughts like God after him. Now, the reason I bring this up because we're discussing Psalm 6 is because it's a great contrast. On one hand, you have a brand of Christianity. We'll call it that specifically, a brand of Christianity that says to those in Psalm 6, you, you God has big dreams for you. You just need to change your thinking. And if those that hold to this theology, if they had a friend who was going through a, something like what the psalmist was going through in Psalm 6, they, they would give a very different situation. Now, I kind of got ahead of myself because some of you don't know what Psalm 6 says. So let's stop and read it. Right? A Psalm of David. O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Now, the majority of that psalm has the psalmist in a very despairing situation as you picked up from that text. Can you imagine going to somebody in that kind of pain and telling them, God has big dreams for you. Big dreams. And you're like, through your tears, you're saying, I, I don't feel that way right now. And you tell your friend, yes, yes, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What you need to do is just learn how to dream like God dreams for you. Now, if your friend doesn't throw you out because they're truly a friend, they might ask you, okay, well, I might want to do that, but I don't know how. 
how, how would I do that? And you might say something like this if you subscribe to this brand of Christianity. Well, first, you've got to enlarge your vision. Enlarge your vision. Believe that God wants to make your life easier and provide you with special treatment and preferential treatment. You're like, that, that sounded pretty good. How do I do that? Well, you've just got to expect good things from God and he will provide them. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Just, just expect good things from God and he'll provide them. Okay, what next? Secondly, well, you've got to develop a, a healthy self-image. You are what you believe about yourself. God sees you as strong and courageous, as a man of or woman of great honor and value. You've got to conceive of God's promises that he thinks about you and then they will come about. You, you've got to believe them. If you start acting like it, talking like it, seeing yourself as more than a conqueror, you will live a prosperous and victorious life. And it sounds very strange in Medina Bible Church, doesn't it? I am quoting someone. You can probably guess his name. Thirdly, you've got to discover the power of your thoughts and words. Our words become self-fulfilling prophecies. If you allow your thoughts to defeat you and then give birth to negative ideas through your words, your actions will follow suit. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. But when you think positive, excellent thoughts, you will be propelled toward greatness. Inevitably bound for increase, promotion, and God's supernatural blessings. But that's not all. Man, you got to let go of your past. You can't live successfully and with God's favor all over you if you're bitter and disappointed all the time. You got to let go of those tears. You, you got to get rid of that dismay. You got to be positive. Well, then you got to find strength for adversity. Uh, don't allow adversity to stop or slow you. God has promised you that he'll turn your challenges into stepping stones for promotion. Then you got to learn to give. You got you to live to give. If, if you want to see healing and restoration in your own life, then you have to go out and help somebody else get well. That's what you got to do. And finally, you just have to choose to be happy. You've got to start living a life of happiness and excellence. If you start taking care of what God has given you, then he'll be more likely to give you something better. Seven steps, that's it. What's wrong with this advice? Well, according to 40,000 people that attend Joel Osteen's church and 8 million people that bought the book, there's nothing wrong with it. That's sad. But what they will find out if they ever give this advice to somebody in a Psalm 6 situation, is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can think positive thoughts all you want to, all day long, and it's not going to raise you out of the pit of despair. 
because that pit of despair was not created by your imagination and it will not go away by your imagination. Your friend in that situation, or perhaps you've been there, that's a serious situation. You need a serious remedy for such a serious problem. The people that sell the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, of which I just told you, I quoted the whole thing in many cases, that's like selling snake oil in years gone by that the snake oil would fix everything and the salesman would come along and sell that to you and many people bought it and thinking it would fix their ailment and unfortunately there's many people today who buy that but the problem is it doesn't work and then add on top of that there's nothing Christian about that message did you notice that Joel Steen mentions God Three times, I think, in the book. One time is sort of an illustration, so maybe two times. Jesus, none. Sin, not there. There's nothing Christian about that best-selling Christian book. Or approaching 20 years that it's been since it's been written. That next year will be 20 years. Eight million people bought that. Eight million people think that that's Christianity. But it overlooks some things. It overlooks that Jesus told his disciples that they were going to experience hardship in this in this world. They would experience tribulation, even though Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Yet he told them they would experience tribulation. He didn't say, well, if you just think positive thoughts. You won't have tribulation. No, that's that's not what he said at all. The book of James clearly warns us that Christians will encounter various kinds of trials. The apostle Peter does the same thing in his letter. He he tells us there are these trials that will come and God has ordained these trials for your good, for, for your edification, for your building up. They're not these trials are not outside of God's control. They don't come upon you because you just don't think the right way. Our God is sovereign. He directs our paths to these things. And then add to that the fact that the book of 2 Timothy warns us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be happy. Is that what it says? All who desire to live righteous in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Right? Persecuted. Sometimes the things we go through have very little to do with anything we did or what we're thinking, but everything about who we believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we face persecution for that. Many Christians today are facing situations like that. Try selling Joel Osteen's message to the Christians in Nigeria. I don't think they'll be buying it. And then add this. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines those he loves. As you know, we have issues with sin. As believers, we don't want to sin, but we struggle with sin and we sin. And when we continue in that, the Lord brings discipline into our lives because he loves us and he corrects us. So sometimes the the trials that we go through, the difficulties that we go through, the things that cause us dismay and mourning are created by our own hand. They're, They're discipline. 
that God intends for our good. We know that. He says in Hebrews 12, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he flogs every son whom he receives. For it is discipline that you endure. God, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share in his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's discipline, as you know from experience, is not pleasant, but it produces good work in our lives. It produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, so today's Christianized pop psychology is is just it's empty. It's an empty vapor. It's not going to provide real help to people in serious situations. Psalm six provides us the reality that life is not all a bed of roses, or rose petals, whatever you a bed of roses doesn't sound very nice, but for some reason we think it does. I just think of the thorns. But rose petals, maybe. That's what they mean. Um, life is not all rosy. There are some times in our lives that are just really difficult to, to go through. And Psalm 6 admits this and helps us to, to see a, a window into the life of a believer who went through something very difficult and, and how he responded. And this, this psalm is... Uh, clearly broken up into really two parts. So in verses 1 through verses through verse, um, really verse 8, um, sorry, verse 7, you, you've got just the psalmist pouring out his heart. It, he's, he's, he's dismayed and he's pouring out his soul to Yahweh. It's a, it's a bit of a lament. Some people consider Psalm 6 like the first penitential psalm. You might see that if you read a commentary. It, it, it's not really that because there's no explicit confession of sin. I'll explain why some might call it that, but it's really a, a lament. A lament is not a word we use very much. You know lament from the book of Lamentations, right? Jeremiah. That's a book of lament. Cry now. God, help us. God, why are we going through this? This is awful, God. Right? That's lament. Right? And you almost can't really say it without like putting all that emotion in. You, you, it, that's, that's what a lament is. It's, it's not just that you've fallen down and you've scratched your knee. Right? It's significant pain, significant turmoil. And when we see that in David's life, that David begins by just pouring out his heart to Yahweh. He says, oh, Yahweh. Now, for those that might not be familiar, Yahweh might be strange, uh, strange name. Have we invented a different God? Well, no. no. The problem is, for many years, our English Bibles would not translate the proper name of God, the personal name of God, for fear of, like offending people, um, it comes from the 
the, the Jews got to a place where they didn't want to say the name of, pronounce the name of God incorrectly, and so they just wouldn't say this name. But this is the name God revealed himself by, and the Legacy Standard Bible is trying to help us understand that. Um, God doesn't have a problem pronouncing his name, and he told Moses to tell the Israelites, Yahweh, I am, that's who sent you. Tell them that's who sent you. This is not a nebulous God. This is not the God of, you know, the 12 steps of whoever made up that remedy. This is not just a higher power. This is the creator God. His name is Yahweh. And it might be strange, but understand, strange to our ears, but understand that's the name he chose for himself. It has to do with his ever eternal existence and also his covenant keeping nature. He is a covenant keeping God. He never breaks his covenants. He's always faithful. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but Yahweh is mentioned eight times. Eight times in this relatively short psalm. When you see repetition, helps you detect the theme. Right? You don't get anything else, hear anything else. Just know when you're in this kind of turmoil, pour your heart out to Yahweh and he will be there. Right? The psalmist did that eight times in this brief psalm. David laments. And we need to understand lament. Lament is just pouring out your heart. You know, the New Testament tells us that we're to do all things not grumbling and complaining. So th- don't look at what David's going through here. It's like, David, you're just grumbling and complaining. You know, you just need to get over it, man up, and move on. Right? That's, that's not possible. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you're just broken. The tears keep coming. The, the legs don't have strength. This is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of moment. This is, I'm sinking. I'm sinking. Every time I move, I'm sinking farther down in this, this pit sand. In this quick, is this pit of sand, this quicksand is just sucking me down. And if God doesn't rescue me, I'm gone. Right? There's no self-help here. So when he, his lament is just an earnest confession of where he's at. God already knows that. God doesn't need to be informed. But this is David's, this is ex, his expression of faith. And we must learn to call upon God in good times and in bad times. And that's what he's doing. And, and you see in, in verse 1, David, David laments that he's experiencing God's discipline. Look at his words. He says, oh, Yahweh. Do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, understand reproof means correction. Discipline is just like what we talked, read in, in Hebrews 12. It, discipline is, it's not punitive in nature. Uh, God isn't doing it just to punish. Do it. God is bringing upon you, uh, in this case, David, circumstances that will help him learn not to do something that he did before. And that's what discipline does. You get that when you discipline your children. You are not trying to crush your children. You are not trying to to beat them down or to discourage them. There's an intention with the discipline. That's to teach them not to do something like disobey or whatever it is. You're, you're trying to help them learn something. And that's the intent here. So we can say that David is admitting in, in a certain sense that he's done something uh, wrong. This is an implicit 
uh, admission of, of some wrongdoing. That's why people will call this sometimes the first penitential um, you know, uh, psalm. But again, there's no confession of sin, but there is, a, an, uh, I guess, an implicit admission that he's done some wrong. You know, notice that, that David, uh, David doesn't say, Yahweh, do not reprove me, nor discipline me. What he adds next is very important. David is not contesting the fact that he is deserving of discipline, that he needs the Lord's reproof, that he knows that he needs that. Um, but he is saying, don't correct or discipline me in your anger, in your wrath. Now, when we hear anger, the words anger and wrath, we think of our own anger and wrath because that's the only thing we have to, to relate it to or, or someone else's anger and wrath. And especially the word wrath, you think of someone that's just like, they've had it, you know, that's like the boss. The boss has had it. You've been late, you know, for the last time and he, someone else chewed him out earlier this morning, so now you're going to get it. You know, and that's just, that's what you think of. But but that, that'd be wrong. Because God's anger and wrath are righteous. He's never sinfully angry or sinfully wrathful. So whatever wrath um, and anger God has are, are just and right. So why is David saying, don't discipline me in your anger? Don't, don't, don't discipline me in your wrath. Don't reprove me in your anger. But it's interesting, though, the word anger that's used here in the Hebrew is actually speaking of the nostrils. And in some case, depending on the context, it's translated that way. Right? What is it referring to? Well, you kind of know this. It's graphic, right? Like when you're angry, and you're, you know, you just, your nostrils flare out and, you know, you think of the raging bowl in the cartoons. I mean, there's, there's some truth to that. I mean, that, that's, that's the idea here. So that there's anger mounting. But again, with God, it's not sinful. It's righteous. But David asked God not to discipline him in his wrath or in his anger because God, when he unleashes his anger and his wrath, it's usually upon his enemies, not upon his, you know, like those who are truly his. And, and David knew that if God disciplined him in his wrath, David would cease to exist. That would be the end of David. That would be the final. There would be no more David. He, David's not saying he didn't deserve that. He's just pleading with God not to discipline him in his righteous wrath. And it's interesting that Jeremiah actually prays something very similar. In Jeremiah 10, 24, in in as the nation, as Jeremiah was witnessing the downfall of Israel, the, how God judged Israel, he prays this to Yahweh. He says, discipline me, O Yahweh, but with justice, not with your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And, and Jeremiah's praying that on behalf of Israel. He says, not with your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That's exactly the spirit of, that David was praying in. Lord, Discipline me, but not in your anger, lest I come to nothing. So, so David is, is pleading with the Lord not to discipline him in anger or in wrath. And, and look what he how he laments next. In verse 2, he says, Be gracious, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. 
I am pining away. So he, he continues to pour his heart out. Corny, to, to pine is not a word that we use today. It means to languish. Uh, it means to lose strength and become weak or feeble. You know, if you don't feed your dog or your cat for a period of time, they will slowly languish away where they're just just skin and bones. Right? So that, that's that's what David is, that's kind of languishing or pining away that David is talking about. It suggests something that's an enduring situation. This isn't just something that happened yesterday to David. This is something that's been going on a while. And, and the longer you're in this situation, the more you pine away, the weaker you get. And with this lament, he he puts his request out there. He actually puts his request first. He says what? Be gracious to me. You notice David isn't saying, God, I've, I've done a lot for you. I fought Goliath for you. I faced death for you. You owe me something here. He's not doing that. He's pleading for God's grace. He's just pleading for God's grace. And and that's where we need to be in any kind of difficulty. Whatever we're going through, no matter how difficult it is, we always deserve worse than we're getting. I mean, that's the reality of our situation. Because of our sin, we deserve death and condemnation. But because of the gift of God in Christ Jesus, we receive forgiveness, we receive life, eternal life. So even in this in a temporal sense here on earth, we go through some difficulties, it's we can always look at it and say, well, I'm, I've got it better than I deserve. And that's really what David is saying. Lord, save me. I don't want to be here, but I know there's nothing in my life that I can use to like justify the request. I'm just requesting you to be gracious. I'm pining away. And then David laments. Um, he, he, he laments further. Be gracious to me. He, he says... He comes to this word dismay at the end of verse 2, second part of verse 2. Oh, Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. Now, the word dismayed means to be horrified or terrified out of one's senses. It could refer to, to like shaking out of, out of fear. That's the, that's the idea we're talking about. His bones are dismayed. What is he doing? It's a poetic way to say that's the kind of depth which the despair the, the terror um, had had gotten to. I mean, it was like, this isn't just a superficial, hey, I'm gonna, I had a bad day, I'm going to brush it off and, and move on. This is, it's so internalized in David's life that, that he's using the, the idea of bones here to speak about that internal dismay. Um, and in fact, he adds to that in verse three, he says, and my soul is greatly dismayed. Now, sometimes we think about Spirit, uh, soul, and body—how the different how the New Testament uses those terms. But just understand when David refers to his soul, he's not just referring to the spirit, his spiritual nature, but he's using the word soul to encompass everything about him. Right? So he's a whole person. Right? So he's using his the term bone to talk about the how how deep it hurt. He's using soul to, to really encompass everything about him and is is in dismay. My soul is greatly dismayed. Not just dismayed, but greatly dismayed. That That's, this whole word dismay is something that's like you could say it, but I want you to feel it. Um, 
let's look at some cross-references to help us really understand what David is, is saying, the depth of what he's saying. And it helps you understand that the cheap Band-Aid solutions offered by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel are not going to help. Uh, psalm 48 is a good example where this word is used. Psalm 48 is a psalm about the city of God. It's talking about how great Yahweh is. And when Yahweh is in his city in Jerusalem, it's fully protected. And I'm just going to pick up. I want you to pay attention to verse 5. But I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. But look particularly in verse 5. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king, God in her palaces, has made himself known as a stronghold. For behold, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. That is, they saw Jerusalem defended by Yahweh. They came to assault Yahweh. They came I mean, to assault Jerusalem. They came to attack Jerusalem. But when they saw it, that is, Jerusalem guarded by Yahweh, who was the strong, the stronghold for them. So when they saw it, they were astonished. They were dismayed. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. So when you hear the word dismay, when you hear David use the word dismay, it's not just that he's a little discouraged. He's like a woman in childbirth who's just breathing in pain. Right? That, that's what, that, what you need to see. And, and this, kind of, this kind of dismay sends mighty warriors running. They're scared. They're terrified. They are running. Uh, Isaiah uses this as well. Isaiah 13. You can either listen or, or turn there with me. Isaiah 13. Looking at verses 5 to 9. And this is an oracle against Babylon. So God is speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Babylon. Uh, prophesying of Babylon's future demise, future judgment. Just jumping in, verse 5. They are coming from a far country, that is that is Yahweh, Lord of hosts. His, uh, look at the end of verse 4. Yahweh of hosts is mustering the host for battle. Host is a word for army. Like Yahweh of armies is mustering his army. He doesn't even need an army. But he's mustering one. Right? And he's bringing his army judgment against Babylon. And look at verse 5. Um, For they are coming from a far country, from the end of the sky, Yahweh and his instruments of indignation to wreak destruction on the whole land. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and labor pains will take hold of them. They will wreathe like a woman in labor. They will look like one another in astonishment. Their, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Wow. And again, dismay compared to a woman wreathing in labor pain. She can't do anything because she's in so much pain. Warriors, scared for their lives, terrified and running away. Right? So when 
when David says in Psalm 6, he's dismayed. No simple band-aid's going to help that. Only God can help that. I just want to pause for a minute here to, to try to say that, to show that, that believers go through very difficult times at, by God's hand at times. Uh, sometimes when we see people going through difficulties like this and they claim to be Christians, we might think, well, they're Christians. Why are they so, why are they so distraught? And you going through this, you might think to yourself, I shouldn't feel this way. I have the Lord as my God and my rock. Why, why do I feel so terrible? I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel so dismayed. But it's actually not accurate. Look at Psalm 6 and you can see that a believer in the Lord, yes, before the cross and we're after the cross, we see things more fully than David saw. But David was a believer in God. And David was dismayed. And God doesn't rebuke David for being dismayed. This this isn't David, again, David grumbling. This is this David being dismayed. As we'll see in a moment, he, he's weeping. Real men weep. David was a warrior. No one ever accused David of being a wimpy man. And yet we see David weeping. So don't think for a minute, men or boys, that that real men don't weep. That's a lie. David's weeping. David's torn up. And so we need to just realize that God sometimes takes us through through situations like that. Um Admit the difficulty. Admit where you are. Don't try to play tough. Come before God and, and lament to Him about your situation that you are dismayed. I mean, after all, His providential hand brought you to that situation. You might It might not be any, uh, any kind of discipline, but His hand brought you to that place. And he knows how you're feeling, so admit it and call out to Him. Ask for His help. And And you know what? We have a better example than even than even David. Do you know that Jesus, as he approached the cross, facing the wrath of God, quoted from none other but Psalm six? John twelve, verse twenty seven, Jesus says, Now my soul has become dismayed. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John 12, 27. So if it's okay for Jesus to face a situation in which he was dismayed. In a different sense, um, you know, he wasn't fearful like in the sinners running away and the examples we have in Isaiah. But he was nonetheless dismayed. He was facing something he had never faced before. Through eternity, Jesus had always, Yahweh had always been with the Father. The Son had always been with the Father and the Spirit. And in some way that's mysterious to us, he was facing a moment when the Father's wrath would be turned towards him. He had never experienced that before. He knew the fury. He knew the anger because he is Yahweh. And now that fury and wrath is going to be turned towards him. 
because he was going to be made sin on our behalf so that he could pay that penalty. And just, just thinking about that caused Jesus to be dismayed. You know that he finished the mission, so therefore there's courage that he had to keep going forward, but it's the same idea, dismay. He was heartbroken over this. It wasn't a moment to say, well, i got to think positive thoughts about my father. No, Jesus was dismayed. And it's okay to be dismayed when those kind of circumstances come into your life. Um, David's request in the situation, going back to Psalm 6, is, Lord, heal me. Heal me. But notice, notice through this, that David's so heartbroken. He's so broken. He's so heartbroken. He's so emotional. That he asked this question in the end of verse 3. But, but you, oh Yahweh, how long? He doesn't even really finish the sentence. You ever been like that where you're trying to pray and you just, you just don't finish your sentence? You just, your heart's so broken. He's wanting to ask, how long are you going to be away from me? Or how long are you going to allow this to continue? But he, but he can't. He just, he just kind of breaks the sentence off and just says, how long? How long? And notice how he, his request in this situation as the serious dilemma he's facing in verse 4. He says, return, O Yahweh, and rescue my soul. Return. Had God gone anywhere? Well, not really. You know God's omnipresent. But when you're in a place where you're dismayed, you feel like God is a long ways away. A long ways away. And so that's how David prays. Return. Come back. Come back to me. Because he knows the nearness of God is his good. You see, someone who is who is self-righteous, who who doesn't want to follow the ways of God, the nearness of God is their ruin. Because God can't be in the presence of unrighteous sinners. But to those who have faith in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can affirm that the nearness of God is going to result in our good. In purification, yes. In momentary pain, yes. But it's going to result in our good. And David, please return, return and rescue my soul. Save me because of what? Again, we get back to the Lord's grace. Your loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word hesed, right? Steadfast love. We saw this in Psalm 5. It's a, it's a very common word in the Old Testament. Hesed, steadfast love, loyal love. There's not one good way to translate this into English, but it has the idea of steadfast, loyal love. That is God. Hesed, faithfulness. He's going to be there. David is pleading, Lord, save me because of your loving kindness. And calling upon the Lord's covenant promises to David. Save me. Rescue me. The, the pain was so great. He wanted God near. And we know from other Psalms, like Psalm 34, 18, that Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Right? He, is, he is inclined to come to people and comfort them in their pain. Call to him. Call to him. And if, if you're without Christ today, you don't know where you're at. 
know that if you're not in a place of dismay today, one day you will be. And it may be on your deathbed. And if you continue just to go your own way, you're going to face a wrathful God. And I don't mean sinful God. I mean, he is going to face you for judgment and you will experience God's discipline in his anger and his wrath. But Jesus went to the cross and was dismayed. So you don't have to face that. If you but believe in Jesus Christ, then all of the wrath that God would have poured upon you for your sins, he pours upon Jesus. And and in exchange, you get Jesus' righteousness. Jesus takes your punishment. So I just plead with you. Don't don't let this just fall on deaf ears. Don't let this just be another sermon that you barely stay awake through. Take it to heart. Hear the Lord's gift of salvation to you and his loving kindness. The Lord wants to save you, wants you to turn to him. And and for those who are believers, just pause and reflect upon life. The life may not go like you want it to. Actually, it always goes like you don't want it to. Right? Not, I shouldn't say always. What I mean by that is it's not always bad. But, it, but it, at some point, God's going to bring something you didn't expect. Sometimes good, but sometimes difficult. But you're going to know lots of people that they're going through difficult things. So, so just be patient with one another. Scriptures say to weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weeping is okay. We're not going to stay there. And you'll see the psalmist doesn't stay in the place of of dismay. But there's an acknowledgement that we're there. So weep with those who weep. David David gives a a bit of, of reasoning why God should save him. Beyond just according to your loving kindness. He says there in verse 5, For there is no remembrance of you in death, and Sheol, who will give you thanks? So Sheol is a term used in the Old Testament to speak out the place of the dead. Just, just looking at it as a, as a whole, um, that's, that's the place of the dead. So is David here saying there's no life after death? Ah, that's not what he's saying. There's plenty of other Psalms that, that we know that, that talk about, um, about where David had a belief in life after death. He believed in the resurrection. So what is he doing here? Well, he's just simply saying that if you don't rescue me, I am going to die. I'm going to be put in the grave and my voice will no longer be active on the earth, praising your name and giving thanks to your name. David was the leader of Israel in a certain sense because of the way Israel was structured. He wasn't just a political leader. He was also a spiritual leader. He wasn't the priest. But he was a spiritual leader of Israel. And so he was to lead Israel in giving thanks. He was to lead Israel in praising God, if nothing other than by his example. And so if David dies, his voice is silenced. That's all he's saying. Lord, save me because of your loving kindness. I, I can't praise you if can't praise you here on earth if I'm dead. Right? So that that's what he's saying. And he's just using that to say, Lord, let me live longer to give you thanks, to praise your name in front of the Israel and even in front of his enemies. And then in verse six, you see David's lament with his with his tears. This is what I was referring to earlier. I am weary with my sighing. Right? Just just again, try to get into what David's saying. 
You ever been tired of being tired? You ever been so tired day after day that you're tired of being tired? Or some of you deal with um, medical conditions that are um, like they're ongoing. You, you just they're just part of your everyday life. Hey, you're just sick of being sick. Right? So this is what this is David's way of putting this. I'm I'm weary with my sign. Just ah, oh, right? sign. You know what that is? It's groaning. You know, um, there are periods in my life where I, I dealt with some, some fevers and sickness, and I just I just groan. I don't know what it is. I when I have a higher temperature fever, I just just groan. You know, it's just it's not pleasant. But that's the idea. You're you're just so weary. You're tired of being tired. You're tired of all the sighing. Lord, I, I don't want to sigh anymore. And then he uses some very poetic language here. He says, every night I make my bed swim. Hey, let's think about the imagery there. Talk about tears. I mean, you've been there. I'm crying on your bed. You make your pillow all wet. So he's just, he's not saying literally that much, but he is using that kind of overspeak, that poetic overspeak to show how much he cried, how much he was broken. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. So couch there isn't like, it's not necessarily like your couch. It's another um, uh, reference to something you would sleep on. You could sleep on your couch too, you probably do. But it's it's that idea. It's a different different place to sleep. Different word used again in poetry. Often Hebrew poetry often use different words uh, for the same thing. So I think it's referring to the same thing. But he floods the couch with his tears. And then in verse seven, he, he laments more by saying, "My eye has wasted away with grief." And the, the term that he used actually kind of speaks of those of what happens when you get older. And those that aren't older will understand this, where your eye begins to kind of grow dim. And we have we have things that, that that help us with glaucoma and things like that 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 help. Uh, you can actually brighten your eyes again. There's surgeries to 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 get clarity on your in your vision. But they didn't have that back then. So when people got older, it was common that their eyes would begin to dim. They wouldn't couldn't see. Well, David's not David's problem isn't age. It's he's just crying, weeping, bloodshot eyes so much that he just can't can't even really see clearly. That, that's what he's saying. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. So I'm not old in age, but I'm old in grief. And there, this is the first mention of his adversaries. So in some sense, this situation, whatever it was, was part God's discipline, part, it seems, maybe even some physical ailments. Maybe that was part of the discipline of, of God. We don't, we're not really sure. And then you have a third part the adversaries, the enemies. We don't know what part they played. Maybe they were just on the outskirts just laughing at David. Look at him. Ah, look at him weep. He's so pathetic. You know, we don't know, but David says in part his grief was because of his adversaries, how they were treating him, what they were saying about him. And that's the end of the lament. But the psalm doesn't end that. There's something really interesting that happens between verses 7 and 8. David's done pouring out his lament and his dismay. And all of a sudden in verse 7, I mean verse 8, he starts talking confidently. 
Like, what is there between verse 7 and 8? There's white space, right? What happens? It's called the work of God in a person's life to change perspective. And he tells us in part this, this perspective change right here in the, in the psalm. So speaking to his enemies, whether, whether this is just done in prayer or whether it's done they were literally he, where he could see them, we don't know. But he is speaking in his prayer to his enemies. He said, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Does that sound familiar? Again, Jesus quotes from this psalm. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, where, where Jesus says this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, so David is is really prophetically um, really echoing what Jesus would say and, and saying, I want nothing to do with sin and those who pursue wickedness. We already learned from Psalm 5.5 that God hates workers of iniquity. David is just expressing that in different language. Depart from me. Away from me. You can't be here. I don't want you here. You're judged by God. Depart from me. And Jesus uses that same kind of language to speak about those who would who would fake of being a, a, a worker of righteousness. They are really workers of iniquity, workers of, of sin. So how did David muster up this kind of confidence between what we see here in, in, in verse 7 to verse, and in verse 8? How did he do that? He tells us. Look at verse 8. For Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. Notice the emphasis there. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Again, kind of shows you the depth of despair he was in. It wasn't just a, his prayer wasn't just that with given with words. He he was he was weeping. And God took notice of that. God took notice of his crying. Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. God has heard my supplication. Supplication is another word for request. So David said, David pleaded with the Lord to, to save him. Had God saved him yet? No, there's no evidence of that. The circumstances hadn't changed. But he became confident of it because he was confident of, because of, of Yahweh's covenantal love. David remembered who Yahweh was, his faithfulness, and he his confidence grew by the grew on the foundation of the character of God's faithfulness. This isn't some, this isn't David just saying I'll think positive thoughts. This is David grounding his thoughts on the faithfulness of God, and David says, "I Yahweh will hear me. Yahweh has heard my supplication." And this is really cool. The end of verse nine, Yahweh receives my prayer. It wasn't just that Yahweh had heard. That Yahweh hears. It's that Yahweh had received it. It's like receiving an order. Like when you place an order online, the company receives it, sends you an email and says, we got it. Right? We'll let you know when it ships. Kind of like that situation where 
God in, in some way let David know the situation is bad now, but hold on. You are, I'm going to save you. And, and it's really grows out of, again, the character of God's faithfulness where David acknowledges Yahweh receives my prayer. I hadn't received the answer yet. He received the prayer, so the answer was as good as done. And this is really interesting what the psalmist does here. All my enemies will be ashamed. Before, they were shaming David. Now they're the ones ashamed. Then look at, he goes to continue in verse 10. All my enemies will be ashamed and what? Greatly dismayed. David started out dismayed. He was the one greatly dismayed. But now God, God's brought him to a place of confidence. And now it's David's enemies. Who are the ones who are going to be ashamed and greatly dismayed? Why? Because Yahweh shows up to save David. And they know they're in trouble. They turn, they shall turn back and will suddenly be ashamed. Just like when we read Psalm 48 about those who sought to attack Jerusalem. They brought their armies, but when they saw that Yahweh was there, they were dismayed. They fled. They knew they were in big trouble. And that's exactly what David, the, the situation David pictures at the end of, of Psalm 6. So just just meditate on these wonderful truths that, that God is never going to just turn his back on you. He's never just going to silence. You know, if you get an incoming call that you don't want to receive, you just silence it. God's not going to do that to you. He's going to hear your prayer. He's going to receive it. He's going to answer. You may not know the timing. The timing probably will not be when you want it because you want it now. And that's what happens to me as well. But trust him. Hang on to him and be confident that he will answer you. You know, through the Psalms, God gives a glimpse of the reality of life. It, life, even as believers, as Christians, is not all rosy. We will experience trials and difficulties. And when that happens, remember Psalm 6. David's dismay, and you can say David's confidence. There's two ways to, to divide that psalm. David was earnest and honest about his dismay. Right? But as he turned to God, as he turned to Yahweh to seek his help, then Yahweh gave David the confidence he needed to endure that situation with a, with a, a bit of defiance, in, in a sense, even able to tell his, his adversaries that they were in big trouble, that they, are to, they, were, they would flee. So remember the God's faithful, loyal love that to any of you who call upon the name of Christ, you're Christians, you have that love. In fact, you know it even, even in a richer sense because we stand on the other side of the cross. Right? Knowing all that we have, all that God's given us, everything in the New Testament that we've given. Right? This is God's real solution. This is God's serious remedy for serious problems. God doesn't give his children cheap tricks or mirages. God offers you real remedies to life's most crushing circumstances. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are just thankful that you're a God who cares about us, that you 
sovereignly and providentially guide our steps to the places that you have for us. And sometimes that's those are difficult places. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to respond rightly, to pour out our heart in lament, if need be, to you. Because that lament would be a lament of faith in you and trust in you. And I just pray that you would just help us to be prepared and be armed, to be ready for every good work that you put in front of us, to honor and glorify you no matter where you take us, no matter what circumstance you place us in. And I just pray that you would just use this church, Lord, to, to help other believers, to encourage other believers to walk in Christ, to be able to deal with even some very ser- serious difficulties that would otherwise drown us and lead to our end and our ruin. But through you, you will bring us to, to, the, um, to the other side of that in a way that is good for us and brings glory to your name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pulpit Ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.